0: This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. This is probably the closest I will come to delivering a sermon on New Year's resolutions. If you'll open to Jeremiah chapter 6, or it may be up on the screen. 16 and... did they just get 16? Yeah. I added that. That's not anyone's fault but mine. Added verse 17. Let me read from the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord... Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. And I set watchmen over you, saying, Listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not listen. Now, to give you some background on Jeremiah and the people of Israel at this time, You may or may not know that at this time Israel is under the discipline of the Lord in some way. They are in service to the Babylonians. They are supposed to be paying tribute. Jeremiah's prophecies cover a long length of time, perhaps 50 years in the time of Israel. A lot of things happen throughout that time, but one of the things that's true is that Israel is... uh, um, not liking the authority of Babylon over them, they don't like it that the Babylon, Babylonians that they have to pay tribute, and so there's a point in their in their lives uh, actually early on where they join with Egypt and and decide that they're going to stop paying tribute, and this causes a chain of events to occur that bring their uh, Bring the Babylonians up against them in siege of the city that happens while Jeremiah is living there. And Babylon is used all through the Bible as a placeholder for evil, kind of a a poster city for excess and vice, like we would think of Las Vegas, right? What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. It's the way we think of places of vice in our in our world, maybe New York. You might think of New York that way. So Israel is under discipline, and they're in service to the Babylonians, and they don't like that service, and they're rebelling against that discipline, and they're continuing in unrepentance and belief. Uh, Jeremiah is prophesying to them, telling them that they need to repent of their sins in turn, and they're thumbing their noses at Jeremiah. They're, they're The prophets, who are Jeremiah's counterparts, are prophesying lies to the people, telling them what they want to hear. And they're thumbing their noses at the Babylonians. And even at this point, Jeremiah is saying, wait a minute, the Babylonians, God hasn't removed that from you, that discipline of Babylon. And he tells them that they should, when the siege comes, if you know the the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah tells them that they should open the doors and submit themselves, lay down on the floor, right? Roll over on your back because the Babylonians are not going to be overcome by God in this time. They're going to overcome you, and you're better off just to submit to them. And Jeremiah preaches God's message. He says, repent and believe. Submit to your discipline. God had often delivered Israel from powers greater than themselves, often, often. In fact, it's, his, it's one of his favorite things to do if you read the Bible. All the time, God loves to take the weak, the insignificant, the tiny, and he loves to show his power in that small, insignificant person or group of people. He likes to demonstrate his glory that way. But this wasn't one of those times. This was a time when God was telling the people of Israel to repent. And he was telling them that he was going to bring judgment on them. So Jeremiah called them to repentance. He knew by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God had no intention of delivering them from service to Babylon at that time. So here we have Israel at a moment of decision. Jeremiah calls them to a moment of kairos. You are familiar with that Greek word, kairos, two Greek words for time. One is chronos, which has to do with sequential time, chronological, chronos. And the other is kairos. And kairos has to do more with a specific season of time or a pivotal moment in time. So Jeremiah is pointing Israel to their kairos. He's saying, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Listen to the sound of the trumpet. Now is the time. Now is the kairos. A decision needs to be made. And Israel responds, we will not walk in it. And we will not listen. And so they do not find rest for their souls. And as you think about them at that time, you might think, well, the choice was difficult. They were being harassed. Babylon was breathing down their necks. They had the choice of walking in what Jeremiah called the old paths, which would be to repent of their sin. But they preferred the life that they had been leading. In verse 13 it says, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone was greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So there was a complete corruption in Israel. And so he called them to repent and to have faith in God, and he gave them God's promise that they would have rest for their souls. They would have rest. And the other thing that they could do as they stood at the crossroads is they could decide to walk in the other paths, continue in sin, walking in whatever is the opposite of the good way of obedience obedience to God. And so if you think about these people, and you think about them oppressed by the Babylonians, you think about them there in Jerusalem, maybe you would say, well, we should cut them some slack. It was a difficult time. There was a lot of pressure. Babylon was really pushing her agenda. Israel was the minority. They were harassed, right? and that they wanted to keep their past sins well, their pet sins. They loved the entertainment. They loved the sexual immorality. They loved the drunkenness, the adulteries, the murders, the idolatries. They loved the reviling. But they were under a lot of pressure. There was a lot of difficulty. It was hard for them to live at that time. It was tough. Maybe we should cut them some slack. And Jeremiah, pointing out their point of decision he says you have to make a decision to go in the correct way there's really only three choices and maybe if you think about it only two the three choices are that they go and follow the ancient paths the ancient paths being obedient being obedience to God now there were ancient paths of disobedience you understand but when Jeremiah was referring to the ancient paths he was talking about paths of obedience to God So they had the choice of following the ancient paths, the paths of obedience to God, or they had the choice of being disobedient and continuing in the path that they were following. The path of holding on to their pet sins, the path of uh, rebelling against even the discipline that God had sent to them through Babylon. And the third choice, which may be the same as the second, is they could just stand there and be paralyzed by fear right anyone ever feel a little paralyzed three of us okay bunch of liars right paralyzed by fear and so as we think about them they're sitting there and they're living their lives at the kairos and that's where we are as well we live in just a, such a just such a time as the time of jeremiah This is a time of great declension, a time of great spiritual declension in the world, or at least in our near world, the Western world. The great high swell of the revivals of recent history has passed, and we inhabit the time in the trough. Do you understand? Great times of God's work powerfully in the world, conversions and evangelism and seeking of holiness, times of revivals like the Great Awakening. But we're not in that kind of time now. That's not where we are. Things have declined. And we're in a time, a low time, a trough. And so it's a time when In writing about Jeremiah, um, Matthew Henry comments that one of the things that was true of Jeremiah is that he was a reproving prophet. He was sent in God's name to tell Jacob of their sins and to warn them of the judgments of God that that were coming upon them. And then he says this, he says, The critics observe. There were critics back then, I guess. I'm glad we don't have them now. The critics observe that, therefore, his style or manner of speaking is more plain and rough and less polite than that of Isaiah and some others of the prophets. And I don't know, I was reading in Isaiah yesterday, and I'm not sure what Isaiah these critics were reading, honestly. And then Matthew Henry says this. He says, those who are sent to discover sin ought to lay aside the enticing words of man's wisdom. Plain dealing is best when we are dealing with sinners to bring them to repentance. Plain dealing is best. But we live in a time when there isn't plain dealing. We're in the trough. It's like the time of Jeremiah. We have a problem, and the kairos... Is upon us. The present evil age is upon us. And we have to decide are we going to walk in the old paths or the new paths? Are we going to walk in the paths that show God's obedience to God or are we going to walk in the paths that show opposition to God? Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 says, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. You know, you think about these words and you think, okay, I get that. You know, it's easy to be, it's easy to be. But think about how actually, how, how literal these words actually are. Do you know how cheap it is to get a plane ticket to Vegas? Do you know how inexpensive it is? Typically, all through the year, the the tickets to Vegas are the cheapest tickets. Why is that? Why is that? Because broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's easy, literally easy. There are big highways that lead in and out of those towns. It's easy. It's broad. At such a time as this, the prophets of God should be plain dealing. But instead, we're talking about peace and peace. It's an evil time. Yesterday, I was driving down the road and I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a pickup truck that was so lewd and I thought about later the reality of having a bumper sticker like that on a truck in the 1950s do you know what would have happened in the 1950s if the policeman would have seen a bumper sticker on a vehicle i don't know if they had bumper stickers in the 50s but if they would have seen that on the on that vehicle in the 1950s do you know what would have happened they would have been arrested They would have been taken to jail. And you see it every time you drive anywhere, every place you go, every time you turn on your computer or watch your television or drive by a billboard or turn on your radio. You hear it, you see it all the time. Stuff that 70 years ago would have been cause for someone to be thrown in jail. We live in a time of declension a trough, a sinful, evil, wicked age. And it's all around us. And what is the condition of the church? I read a recent quote about what's called the emergent church, which you guys have heard us talk about here, I think, many times. But it's a, it's a philosophy of Christianity of church life that's emerging. Do you know where it's emerging from? And the quote says about the emergent church, quote, there is a studied ambivalence about eternity. There is a studied ambivalence about eternity. The assumption is that there is heaven for all. I met a man this past week in the mall, It's my annual trip to the mall because it was Christmas Eve, but actually, no, it was the day before Christmas Eve. So I was way ahead of the game. (laughs) But I ran into a man, and he had experienced a loss recently in his life, and he was talking, a death in his family, and he was talking to me about how, happy he was to think about heaven and how it was too bad that we didn't hear sermons about heaven regularly. And I thought to myself as he was talking, I didn't say it, but I thought to myself, well, I don't, I don't uh, disagree with you. I suppose there aren't many sermons about heaven, but he didn't volunteer to me that he had not heard sermons about hell either. And I know he hadn't heard sermons about hell. Because they're not in vogue. We don't talk about hell today. But what good is a sermon about heaven to someone who doesn't believe in hell? What good is a sermon about grace to someone who doesn't believe in sin? What good is a sermon about. imminence? The imminence of God to someone who doesn't believe in his transcendence. You know what the imminence of God is that. He works to reconcile us to Himself. Well, if you don't understand why you're separate from Him, both in the the fact of your sin and in the fact of who He is as your Creator, what good is knowing about imminence? How can you possibly comprehend the value of imminence? And so we don't understand hell. I was... I was uh, reading this book, and it has a statement here. It's a book called The Old Evangelicalism by Ian Murray. He has a quote in the front by William Booth. How many of you know who William Booth is? Was the founder of the Salvation Army. How many of you know what the Salvation Army is? How many of you know that the Salvation Army used to preach the gospel? How many of you have ever heard anyone from the Salvation Army preach the gospel recently? It's quite a change in the organization in the last 150 years. So William Booth was asked by an American newspaper when he was alive what he regarded as the chief danger ahead for the 20th century, and he replied, "'Religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, "'forgiveness without repentance,' Salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Did he call it? He saw the trough coming, didn't he? Absolutely. If he saw his descendants in the Salvation Army today, I don't know what he'd do. He'd probably freak out. We don't understand God. We don't understand his transcendence. And so we're willing to hear about emergent. I think a lot of it is because we're an entitlement group. I was telling the uh, evangelism class about evangelicals being an entitlement group. And that fits right into the idea of understanding God's imminence without understanding his transcendence, right? We understand that Jesus is our Savior. He died for our sins, but we don't understand why we needed a Savior, who God is, how we're different from Him. And so we have this sense of entitlement of all the imminent things. You know, He's going to make my my marriage good. He's going to make me healthy. He's going to make me wealthy. And I'm going to go to heaven. But we don't understand the transcendent things. We don't realize what separates us from God. I was reading a story a couple weeks ago illustrating what I think is illustrating the transcendence understood by a pantheist. Okay? And if any of you read this, you'll, it'll be familiar to you. There's this, uh, uh, in Nepal, there's this rogue elephant. And this rogue elephant, every once in a while, comes running out of the jungle, stomps on somebody, And then runs back into the jungle. And so far, he's killed 11 people. True story. 11 people. And, of course, the authorities are all up in arms, except there are no arms, because they can't kill the elephant. He's protected. So they have to, I don't know what, give everybody elephant mace, right? Right? But this is what struck me. There was one victim who was an 18-year-old male and he was killed by the elephant. What was he doing when the elephant killed him? Well, this 18-year-old male was a a, uh, worshiper of the Hindu god Ganesh. Right? Do you know what he was doing when the elephant killed him? He was worshipping the elephant. He bowed down on the ground, prostrated himself, and the elephant killed him. Now, I want to submit something to you. That is an example of understanding transcendence. An example that evangelicals don't understand. We don't understand it. When Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, Job understood transcendence. He understood the authority and power of God over his life. When you think about Jesus coming into the city and all of the children, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And what do the Pharisees say? Tell them to shut up. Don't you realize what they're saying? Tell them to shut up. Pharisees were good evangelicals. Do you know what Jesus said? Come on, somebody. If they are quiet, the rocks will cry out. The rocks will cry out. So we have a problem like the people of the time of Jeremiah, in that we accept as the gospel a lie, and we live and pretend. Or we might stand paralyzed with fear. You think about the the things that are coming at us from our government today. I don't know, do, do any of you ever read headlines on your computer or something? You, anybody ever do that? <coughs> Excuse me. As I read the headlines, I see over and over and over again the ways in which our government is opposed to God, and it just keeps growing. It just, it just keeps growing. Opposition to God, opposition to God. And it doesn't always look like opposition to God on the surface. It always looks like something very, very altruistic, often. But in reality, there is great opposition, great opposition to God. And so what we're we're in a fight about health care, and what is the what are the pivotal issues? Been watching, abortion, right? And we're in a, a fight about the legit, le, legitimization of sodomy, right, on a whole new level. And we're in a fight about what? Atheists having signs on buses? And you think about all of these things and you think about how they come at us and how imposing that they are, the whole environmental religion. How imposing it is. Do you feel sometimes harassed? Do you feel harassed? I do, but you know I was thinking about this, and I think that harassment is, it indicates something bad about us. If we feel ourselves harassed by this, then it indicates something bad, and I'm just going to choose to define harassment this way, to explain something to you. When, when Lot was living in Sodom, the Bible says his righteous heart was vexed. Do you remember? But we live in such a time, and there's a difference between having ourselves harassed and having our righteous hearts vexed. And what is the difference? You may choose another word than harassment. I don't care. That's okay. I'm choosing harassment. What's the difference? Do you know what it is? It's faith. The difference is faith. The difference is trusting in God. The reason why we don't stop dead, paralyzed by the headlines in the news and by the opposition of Babylon in our lives is because we have faith in God. And if we are stopped and if we are paralyzed, it indicates something to us. It indicates that there is A problem with our trust and our faith in God, that there's a difficulty. There's something keeping us from having rest to our soul, even when we're in servitude to a wicked government. John Gill said of the promise of God to Israel through Jeremiah, he said, and ye shall find rest for your souls. There is rest and peace enjoyed in the ways of God and in the, ordinance of the ordinances of the gospel. Wisdom's ways are ways of peace, which are the lesser paths, and in the doctrines of the gospel, when the heart is established with them, the mind is tranquil and serene and at rest, which before was fluctuating and wavering and tossed to and fro with every wind. But the principal rest is in Christ Himself, in whom the true believer that walks by faith in Him has rest from the guilt and dominion of sin, from the curse and bondage of the law, and from the wrath of God in his conscience, and enjoys a spiritual peace arising from the blood, sacrifice, and righteousness of Christ. We are at the Kairos. We need to walk in the old paths, the ancient paths. And the ancient paths are the paths of believing in God, the paths of repentance and faith, the paths of believing his promise when he says to us, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Believing in his revelation Where Jesus says in Matthew 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. And then he goes on to say, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. and we must believe in him. Hebrews 11.6 says, If we would come after God, we must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. When the disciples asked Jesus to increase their faith, what did Jesus tell them? He said first, if you have had faith like if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Is that all he said? He goes on to tell then what seems to be a completely obscure parable that doesn't seem to connect at all. He says, which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Increase our faith. Well, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could move this tree. Let me tell you a story. You're unworthy slaves. What connection is there? Do you know the connection? God is. God is. And when you know that God is, then you know who you are, and I know who I am. And in the context of his authority, we see who he is and the power that he has over us. And if he decides that today is the end of our life, then today is the end of our lives. And we say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And so we are like the servants that Jesus talks about in the parable. We go through life and we do our duty and then we say, we've only done what we ought to have done because we know who God is and we know who we are. And so Jesus meets with the centurion. And the centurion has a sick servant. So the centurion sends to Jesus and says, Would you come and heal my servant? And Jesus says, don't. No, the centurion says, don't come. All you have to do is say the word. I understand. I'm a man under authority. And I have people under authority under me. And I know who you are. The centurion knew that those in authority above him could do what? What did he know? Jim? Jim? To what what degree? How far can they take it? Those in authority over you in the military, how far can they take it? And how far is legal? Can they send you to a place where they know you'll die? Yes. And the centurion knew that. I know about authority, he said. I know who you are, Jesus. Jesus. You don't even need to come to my house. All you need to do is say the word. I just do my duty. I know who I am. I know who you are. And then what does Jesus say about the centurion? I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. That's what he says. And so if we're going to stand repenting of our sins having faith in God, if we're going to not be overwhelmed by Babylon, if we're going to live in the next year with victory, finding rest for our souls, we have to live by faith in God, believing who He is, believing what He has said, believing what He has done, trusting Him, obeying Him. And today is the day. Today is the day. Today is the kairos. This is the day. Are you going to trust him today? John Calvin says about Jeremiah 6.16, this passage contains a valuable truth that faith ever brings us peace with God. And that not only because it leads us to acquiesce or agree in God's mercy, and thus, as Paul teaches us, produces this as its perpetual fruit, but because the will of God alone is sufficient to appease our minds. Do you believe what God has said? Is it sufficient for you? Whosoever then embraces from the heart the truth as coming from God is at peace, for God never suffers his own people to fluctuate while they recumb or recline on him, but shows to them how great stability belongs to his truth. If it was so under the law and the prophets, as we have seen from Isaiah and Jeremiah, how much more shall we obtain rest under Christ, provided we submit to his word For he has himself promised it, saying, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. And you will find rest, he says here, to your souls. So what are you resolved to do? Now, today, in this moment of Kairos, what are you resolved to do?